All right, are you ready for God's word today? Why don't you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 today. We've been in a message series called Points of Passion, and what we've been talking about is the fact that we all have passion. We are passionate people, um, but we also can steward and direct our passion. And this is critical because when we, when we, when we put our passion in the wrong place, when we don't steward our passion well, um, it can cause chaos. It can cause problems. And we kind of use this example of David and Bathsheba, passionate man, passionate in the wrong place. And so we want to direct our passion. We want to point our passion to the things that God is passionate about, because that's the safest place for our passion to be is inside the parameters of where God is passionate as well. Does that make sense? So we've been talking about that. And, and there's something today that's really been stirring on my heart. It has been the whole series. And I had to get us to hear to talk about it. So we're in 2 Corinthians. So let me explain 2 Corinthians really quickly. I like to give you some information that could help you as you are reading and studying along with us. But uh, the way we got 2 Corinthians, Paul in about 50 AD founded or planted the church of Corinth. Corinth was a very prosperous uh, it's kind of a young professionals. It's kind of exploded, just a very prosperous city. Um, and um, and so he plants the church, and there's a communication that we don't have, which was actually the first letter he wrote to the church of Corinth. We don't have it. It wasn't canonized as part of Scripture. Um, but then he, he writes uh, 1 Corinthians, and the Corinthians reject his teaching and reject his authority as, as kind of the head of their church. Um, which was upsetting to Paul because he planted the church. Or he's kind of like, if, if I came in today and said, I want to preach, and all y'all stood up and said, we're not going to listen to you, you're not the pastor. Well, that would be upsetting because I thought I was, right? You know, and you see what I'm saying? It'd be, and so he's like, it was upsetting because he's like I, 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 like, I gave birth to you people spiritually. Like, and now, and what had happened, Corinth had prospered, and they had um, really slick televangelists with Armani robes and big gold rings, and they could speak eloquently, and I'm not knocking people. People here on TV. That was just kind of a joke. All right. So, anyways, um, and and they and, and they started listening in because Paul was humble. Um, he was poor. He worked a job making tents. He wasn't eloquent in his speech, and so they just started chasing after these guys because they're driving the Bentley camels and all that kind of stuff. And and so um, Paul then comes to visit, and he calls it his painful visit. And it was with sorrow and tears, you know, that he comes down there to like help them. Uh, to explain the way of the Lord more perfectly to them. And, and so then he follows up with this letter, 2 Corinthians, which is really kind of the, 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 the closure to their restoration, the restoring of his relationship with the church, the finalization of it. And so in that, in that chapter or in the book of 2 Corinthians, he talks about restoring relationships and he talks about forgotten generosities and he talks about even at the end, he kind of goes back into the, the Corinthians that still don't believe him or, or, or adhere to his teachings or trust him. And so we're going to be in chapter four, five, chapter five. Um, and so that is chapter four through seven is kind of this section on the cross where he gets into what Jesus did on the cross. And it's the paradox of the cross. And part of the reason that he's talking about the cross and what Jesus did was to point to that they're saying that he can't be their apostle or they won't listen to him because he's not successful because he doesn't have the Bentley camel, the gold ring, the Armani robes. And, and so he says, well, what do you do with Jesus? who suffered, because they were saying, Paul, because you're suffering, you're not an apostle. And he said, well, what do you do with Jesus then? Because Jesus came, he didn't have Armani robes, he didn't have gold rings, and he suffered, and he died on a cross that wasn't even his. 
it was ours. And so he is pointing this paradox of the cross and he's pointing to God's salvation, God's character, and, and even this new crucified way of life that we're supposed to, to live. And so 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18, it says, all of this is from God. So time out, let me tell you what all of this is. So he is talking about all that Jesus did on the cross. So in chapter 3, he said, here, here is freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, right? And he said, we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of God in a mirror are transformed into his image from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. In other words, so he's talking about the freedom we have to become who God created us to be, to be transformed, right, in our identity, not just our exterior, but our interior self to be transformed, to be born again. And then chapter four, he goes, and we have this treasure in earth and vessels. In other words, we have the glory of God in these, in these frail clay temples. And then in chapter five, he, so we're all new creations in Christ. So he's talking about this, this grand work of redemption and all that God has done. So that's, that's what all this means. Verse 18, all of this is from God, who therefore, who, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. So given us this ministry of reconciliation, to be reconciled to God. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Um, this is what I want to talk about today. Um, and I call this message, Hanging in the Balance. Hanging in the Balance. Let's pray. Um, God, we have come and gathered today. And God, the last thing we want is another church service. That's the last thing we want. God, what we really want is to hear your voice, to encounter your presence. God, for your truth to change us, for your truth to inspire us, for your truth to inform, not only give us information, but inform the way we're going to live, inform the decisions we're going to make. So God, we pray now that you would speak by the power of your Holy Spirit to all of our hearts, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Hanging, hanging, hanging in the balance. Hanging in the balance. That'll make sense in a minute. But first, let me tell you where, where I got the message. So um, when I was talking about doing this series, The Points of Passion, I was talking about, um, or thinking about, when I was thinking about what I would want to cover. And there's so many things you could cover, honestly, in a series like this. Um, and it's a long series because there's just a lot, and I'm not even going to cover everything that I could cover, but I'm covering what I feel like I'm supposed to cover. And, and one of the things that, 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 I, that happens, I heard some statistics, um, church statistics. These are from Tom Rainer. Uh, Tom Rainer was, um, uh, he was the founding dean of the Billy Graham uh, School of Evangelism and Missions. He also served as the president and CEO of, of Lifeway Christian Resources. So if you ever heard of Lifeway, like the store, um, he was over that organization, and and now he does some other things, but tries to serve the church still. Um, and so he gave these statistics. He said 80% of churches are are declining, 80 80%. Eight out of 10 churches are are shrinking. 
Um, that's bad news. And he said, well, 20% of churches, so it depends on which statistic you want to look at, 20% of churches are growing. I think that's pretty awesome. Um, I'd rather 80% be growing, but 20%. But it was really when, when he started breaking down how the growth was coming that I got a burden. Because what he said was 14% of the 20%, so we're going to break 20% down, 14% are growing through transfer growth, meaning people who already believe in Jesus are coming to those churches. Only, he said, only 6% of churches grow through winning people to Christ, through conversions. 6%. Six out of 100 churches are reaching people. And, and to me, that, that was a concern. And then he, he did a poll where he asked believers to speak into why the church itself wasn't reaching people. And, and he came up with kind of 15 answers after he put it all together, he had a lot of responses. And I'm just going to read these. And before I read them, I just want to say something. I didn't write any of them. So don't get mad at me. I'm just, but, but I also want to say, but you know what we talked about last week, growing is embracing reality at all costs. That truth is offensive, but truth is the only way you grow. So I'm just going to read these and, and you know, they may speak to you. They may not. I don't know. But he said, number one, he said, Christians have no sense of urgency to reach lost people. <laughs> and I just want to say before you gasp, I'm just wondering how many times this week you thought about a lost person. Just a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Verse 2, uh, verse, verse two <laughs> from the book of Tom. Um, <laughs> number two, many Christians and church members do not befriend or spend time with lost people. Number three, many Christians and church members are lazy and apathetic. Can we just say, ouch. Number four, <laughs> we are more known for what we're against than what we're for, i.e. Facebook. In an election year. Now, I added that part. I did really. That was me. <laughs> Our churches have an, e an ineffective evangelistic strategy of you come to us instead of us going to you. Many church members think that evangelism is the role of the pastor and the paid staff only. Church membership today is more about getting my needs met rather than reaching the lost. Church members are in a retreat mode as culture becomes more worldly and unbiblical. Many church members don't really believe that Christ is the only way of salvation. Our churches are no longer houses of prayer equipped to reach the lost. Churches have, their, have lost their focus on making disciples who thus will be equipped and motivated to reach the lost. Christians do not want to share the truth of the gospel for fear they'll offend somebody because political correctness is so commonplace even among Christians. Most churches have unregenerate members who have not received Christ themselves. Ouch. Some churches have theological systems that don't encourage evangelism, and some churches have too many activities, and they're too busy not doing the things. They're too busy to do the things that matter. I honestly, as I read over those, I thought there were some that applied to me. And so if you're here and you're like, oh, none of those apply to me. 
I don't even know what to tell you. <laughs> Truth is your friend. <laughs> You're not in reality, okay? Um, but but it, it really burdened me because I thought, well, no wonder. Because I think some of those things I've seen as a pastor, some of those things I've felt as a person, some of those things I've experienced as a person, some of those things I've been guilty as a person, and some of those things, obviously, I have observed again as, as a pastor. And so I think these are people, just people responding to a poll, some leaders, some not. But I think they kind of encapsulated kind of what's maybe um, stifling the Western church. And yet in light of that, we have this text that Paul writes to the Corinthians about this great work that God has done. And then in turn, this great work that he has given us to do. Um, this work of reconciliation, that, that all of this was God who reconciled us through Christ and has given us a ministry, that word ministry, because uh, remember, we're part of a kingdom. That word ministry would mean to administrate, like you have a ministry, a minister of defense, right? So they administrate defense, right? Or we call them secretaries here, but it's secretary of defense, you know, state, whatever. But it's all ministries of administrating. Um, and so he's like, he has given to us this administration of reconciliation, this ministry like he's done the work and he's given something to us. And so I want to talk about that. So write this down. Three things. Number one, God loves people too much to do nothing. God loves people. So, so 2 Corinthians 5.18, it says, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. All of this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself. And then the second part, we'll talk about in a minute, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. But all this in Christ who reconciled. In other words, so, so God creates man. We know the story. God puts a tree in the garden. And he said, here's the tree of life. And you have as much as you want. Here's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And don't eat this tree. And, and because when you eat this tree, you're, you're going to die. And so now God had to put that tree in the garden because you can't have freedom without choice. You also can't have love without choice. So creating a loving, free people, he had to give them the choice to choose or not to choose, right? Same thing today. To have loving, free people, he gives us a choice. You can choose God or you cannot choose God. That is your decision and he will respect it. Are, are you with me? But, but, but in that, they chose poorly. If you remember um, Indiana Jones, remember, in the Holy Grail? You've chosen poorly. You've chosen wisely, right? Uh, so anyways, um, so they chose poorly. And so, uh, and so they died. And, and Romans 6.23 says that there's something we earn, and a lot of us work really hard at it. It says the wages of sin is death. That if you, it, it, like, we can earn something, and we did earn something. We sinned, and we earned death. Like, we went to work, and we got paid. Right. And so man went to work and they got paid. They were paid fairly for their work and they received death. I just want to point out here that with Jesus, death is the problem, not sin. Sin brings you to death. So sin is the way death is what you end up with. I just want to point that out because some people think Jesus came to solve a problem of behavior. Jesus came to solve a problem of death. Are you with me? We'll talk more about that some other time, but I just want you to understand that, that salvation is not about choosing to make better decisions. Salvation is about realizing I am dead and asking Jesus to raise me to life. 
Okay, and so we went to work and we earned death. And God could have left us there because he's God. And, and, and I know when I was growing up, I was good at making messes. Right? I was known as Messy Marvin, right? As me. And, and my mama taught me when I make a mess, like, honey, you got to clean up your mess. But, there was, but God didn't make the mess and he didn't have to clean it up. Adam made the mess and he couldn't clean it up. And God could have just let it be. But instead, God said, no, I love people too much to do nothing. What if we were a church of people that said, we love people too much to do nothing? No, we can't just sit silent in the comfort of our church pew with the fish on our car and Hillsong jamming on our phone and just say, you know, I'm so glad I'm saved when I'm passing people who I know are not right with Christ and I'm working by people who don't know Jesus and there are people in my family who've never made a profession of faith. How could I love people so much and do nothing? And so God said, I got to do something. So he said, they went to work and they earned a bill they can't pay. So I'm going to balance it for them. Now we'll come back to that in just a minute because in this text, he's using accounting terminology. And so he's like, hey, they, they have a deficit now. They earned a debt. They acquired a debt. And I can't just leave. So I'll reconcile their account by Jesus because I don't want to leave them in the mass of their sin. And I thought about this, and I've said it before, but I believe that if God has, if God has a favorite, it's a lost person. Like if, if God really has a favorite, He wants me to prove it. Second Peter three nine. Look at this. Now some people know part of this that, that God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Now we know that, but look at the first part. It says God is not slow. Well, King James, God is not slack. As some count slackness. But he is patient towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some would call it slowness, but he is patient towards you. Here's what this says. God is withholding the fulfillment of the promise that he wants to give, to give as much space as he can for people to come to him. That he is holding back what we want and what he wants in hopes that more will come to him. If he has a favorite, think about that. He's holding back your promise because somebody, now, if you, if you really think about the system, that means the faster we reach people, the faster the promise comes. I mean, you, just, you, you work that out however you want to. I'm just letting you know what God's doing. But I thought about how God, and if you want proof that God is passionate about the lost, that, that, he is favor, that his favorite possibly is the lost, you can read Luke 15. Luke 15 has three parables. A shepherd who had lost his sheep, and, and I can't ever say that without thinking about Uncle Jesse and the Dukes of Hazard. Shepherd of lost sheep, shepherd of lost sheep. Y'all yeah. didn't watch that show. <laughs> Anyways, there's a shepherd who had lost a sheep, then there was a widow who had lost a coin, and a father who had lost a son. To me, it's the Trinity, the shepherd Jesus, the, 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 the woman, I'm sorry, the woman. Um, would be the Holy Spirit, and then the Father would be the Father. Um, but all of them have the same intense passion that the focus becomes the one that's lost. Because it's, it's a shepherd who goes to look. It's a widow who lights a lamp and sweeps. 
right? And searches diligently. And then it's a father who, who we get this picture who stands and waits. I mean, sheep, you know, shepherds didn't wait for sheep to come back and coins are inanimate. They're not going to come back. But with, with humans, he gives us a choice, but he is waiting to see if you'll come to him. And then all of them, I'll just read the, the verse 8 through 10. This is about the woman. But, or, or what woman having 10 silver coins if she loses one coin? Now think about that. You got nine more. You still got 90%. But, but look what it says. But she lost one. See, you had 99 sheep, you lost one. It could be like, yeah, I got most of them. I mean, if Julie goes out of town and she comes back and I have two out of three children, I call to win. <laughs> We're talking about one sheep out of... Out of a hundred, right? But it says, bring her silver coins. If she loses one coin, doesn't light a lamp, sweep the house, seek diligently until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls together. Look at this, calls together her friends and her neighbors and says, there's a party going on right here. I mean, she gets cooling the gang out. Rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I lost. And then verse 10, and, and this is, he says this multiple times, just just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. When you read that in, in the context of the Greek, what it says is there that God so over, overflows with joy that, that he wants celebration all around him. That, in other words, it's not just, oh, that was good. It's like, no, we're, we, I, everybody's got to feel what I'm feeling. Everybody's got to experience the joy that I'm feeling. And, and I thought about how that today... If God is aware of a number, he's aware of how many don't know him. Like, have you ever thought about that? Like, I thought if, if this is true, that when someone like today, the father, if you will, is standing and he is searching and he's just waiting to see who's coming home today. And by the grace of God, people are going to come home today. People are going to be saved around the world today. Someone will accept Christ today and he'll get to welcome them and follow them and give them a robe and a ring and shoes and throw them a party and heaven's going to go, whoa! Kazoo's, you know, I mean, they're going to have a party. But I thought just as that is true, I bet the other side is true, then he's going to be aware of who doesn't make it. He's going to be aware of who doesn't make it home. He's waiting for them, but they're not, they're not going to make it. And I thought, about, I thought about the numbers, and so I did some math. So if you don't math well, I'll explain it. Simple math. But there are 7.5 billion people in the world. Every day in our world, 151,500 people die. 151,500 people. I rounded up, by the way. but Actually, I rounded down, but they die. Um, that means 105 people die a minute. 45,000 people will die while I'm talking in this experience. 45,000 people will die. According to statistics... <laughs> Three out of four people don't want to be a statistic, but they are now. No, I'm just kidding. Um, according to statistics, 30% of the population of the world claim to be Christian. 30%. So now if you do the math, that means in the next minute, hang on, let me see. 
Yeah. Ready? In the next minute now, starting now, in the next minute, 73 people will die who don't know Christ. That's what I say too. There's a half a minute. So that's 37 people that passed away that didn't know Christ. And there you go. 73 people that didn't make it home. And now it's too late. Too late. And I thought, if God's aware of how many make it home, then he's surely aware of how many don't. And I just thought, what if we were passionate about what God's passionate about? And if God is so passionate about the loss that he couldn't do nothing, what, what, what would happen if our church was so passionate about the loss that we couldn't do nothing? And if God is primarily focused on the loss, because in that parable, that's all he's talking about is what was lost. What would happen if a church was focused not on the temperature, not on the volume, not on the song sung, not on what the pastor wore, not on what the pastor said, not about who's taking an offering and how much it's costing and if they're serving rainbow goldfish or just cheddar goldfish, if we have Starbucks coffee or Colombian coffee, but what if we actually were focused on what he's focused on? And I thought, what if we love people so much we could do nothing about, that we had to do something? We, we love them so much that we couldn't just do nothing. We, we had to do something. If you follow the math out, by the way, that means today 106,000 people, more than the population of our city, will die without faith in Christ every day. Imagine tomorrow Longview was gone. And gone in the sense that they were not, they had not, not faith in Christ, they didn't go to heaven, they were gone. That happens every day. And I don't mean this in a bad sense because I'm just as guilty as you. While I'm worried about how witty my next point's going to be to keep your attention, to keep people from clicking off, while you're worried about what's for dinner or lunch or breakfast, I don't know, it just overwhelmed me a little bit. To think that by the time I'm finished, over 3,000 people will have died without faith in Christ. It's just overwhelming. And so I thought, what if, what if we worked with God on this deal? Because 2 Corinthians talks about what God does and then this ministry that he gives us. But he said, this is what God did. He reconciled. Here's, here's point two. So God loves people too much to do nothing. Here's the second thing. God paid to balance everyone's account. So here's what happened. 
We earned a deficit, right? We earned the wage of death and it's a debt. To get to be right with God means, means to, be, to be in right standing with God means to be we can't have a debt on our ledger. So Paul's using accounting terminologies. Now, I don't like accounting even, even when I talk to our finance team and they give me account, accounting. I don't know if y'all realize this. Accounting works differently than math. It does in my head because I'm such a bottom line guy and accountable. Well, you got a debit over here. You got to have a credit over here and imbalance this and balance that. And well, this got to backtrack into this month and that has to be put over here. And this, you know, because accounting is about getting all the debits and credits exactly where they're supposed to go and keeping everything in balance with every transaction, right? And to me, I just want to know how much. Right. And so we have these funny conversations all the time where I'm like, I did accounting. I have a business degree. I had to do accounting one and accounting two. And I did it. I made an A and I don't care to ever do it again. Right. So, so yay. I understood accounting for like two whole semesters. Okay. And so, but I chose after that to never understand it again. Right. Um, and so, um, Paul is using accounting terminology and, and what he's saying is that, that we sinned and therefore we were given a debit and there was no money in our account and we didn't have overdraft privileges. And now we have a deficit called death in our account and now we're out of balance with God. We were right with God and then now we're out of balance with God. And the Bible says all of us are in, the, all of us come into the world in this situation. So he's in there, well, I really haven't done anything bad. Doesn't matter. Like we were all, I mean, the law was given that every mouth would be stopped, Paul said, and we would all become guilty before God because all of us are guilty. All of us have a deficit. And then Paul says something crazy in verse 19. He says, this, this is that God was in Christ reconciling. In other words, God's like, this out of balance bothers me and I'm, I, I'm a just accountant. I'm a just auditor and it's bothering me and I need to do something about it. So he said that God was in Christ balancing, reconciling the world to himself. Now, how did he do that? Well, the first part was not imputing their trespasses to them. The word imputing is also, if you, if you will, it's also an accounting terminology. Um, it means uh, to balance your account or to, to, to credit or not credit. In other words, he said, I've got to bring balance. And the first thing I've got to do is I can't leave this deficit in their account. They've got nothing for it. So I can't impute. I can't give them credit here. But God is just. So, so for him to not give, if you understand accounting, if there's a debit, there has to be a debit on the books and there has to be a credit on the books. And so over here, here's our account. We have no credits and we have a debit. That's why we have a problem. And God says they have nothing with which to pay the debt. And then he looks over in Jesus account and Jesus has righteousness in his account. And he says, wait a second. If I impute their debt on him, he has the righteousness to absorb it and pay it. And so here's what it says, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's the first part. Second part, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. 
And so here's what he said. To get right with God, he had to balance our account against his account. And so he took the debit of our sin and placed it in Christ's account because he had the righteousness to absorb it. But he didn't stop there because then he withdrew the righteousness that was in Christ's account and placed it in our account so that it balances our account with his. Debit, credit, debit, credit. Are you with me? This is what he did. This is why we're righteous. This is what Paul said. He said, uh, Romans 4, verse 6, he's actually quoting David. He says, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness. Look at this. Apart from works. Apart from works. I'm going to do a series on grace later, but, but look at what he says. That all of this wasn't done by your church attendance, by your religious prowess, by reading the Bible through in a year, by giving a big offering, by how much you pray, by who your parents were, that this was all done, that this imputing of righteousness was a gift. It wasn't earned. That our right standing with God is not earned. Now, let me help you with something that believers struggle with. If you, if, if you can't earn it, you can't maintain it. Because we think, oh, I'm saved by grace, and then, and then, I have to act a certain way to keep it. Now, I don't have time to teach this. We'll get into this later. But that's not how it works. It's either all grace or it's all works. But you don't get to mix the two. It's Jesus plus nothing, not Jesus plus you. Are you with me? And so he said, he imputed this righteousness apart from works. We didn't earn it. We received it. And then, and then Romans 4, 3, backing up a little bit more, he says, for what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted. That is the same Greek word that was translated imputed in the other text. Okay, so you can say, and it was imputed to him for right. So the same thing, same thing with Abraham. It wasn't works. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Do you see that? And then Romans 24, 23 and 24 says, now it was written for our sake, not, now it was not written for his sake, Abraham's sake alone, that it was imputed to him, but for us also, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Christ Jesus, our Lord from the dead. And so, so here you have again, here's what he's saying. It wasn't just Abraham that believed God and received righteousness. Now, now it's all of us. And what John said, that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for our sin only, but the sins of the world. And here is what Paul is saying in this text. That God looked at all, all the accounts, and they were all out of balance. We all had a deficit, and, and we didn't have a deposit. And God wrote one check, and now there are two types of people on the earth. Those who have cashed it, and those who haven't. Because in this text, what he says is God has done the work to reconcile us to him, but now will we be reconciled to him? That he has written the check, but you have to cash it. You have to believe that what Christ did paid for your sin. That you had a debt you couldn't pay. You had a deficit in your account. And the only way to balance your account was not through works or anything else, but in trusting in Jesus and allowing Jesus to put his righteousness in your account and balance your account with his account. 
and make you right with God. And what God is saying is with Jesus, he wrote one check for the sin for every account in the world. And now there are people who cash it and there are people who don't know they have it. They don't know they have it to cash. There are people today trying to earn. They're still trying to work their way out of this deficit. There are people today that don't know their, their sin has been paid for. Their debt has been paid. And for that reason, then he employs the church. Number three, God has done all he will. We must do all we can. Because what, what this says, look, look at this next verse, verse 20. Therefore, now see, when you see therefore in scripture, most of you know you should look and see what it's there for. Okay, when you see all this, well, if he's talking about something that came before that preceded the verse we're in, you should go back up. So he's saying, therefore, what, what, what do you mean? Because Christ, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, right? And so he's building that. He said, therefore, now he's going to get to the church. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So God paid the bill. He paid to reconcile the world with him. But now he has deployed ambassadors with a ministry of reconciliation. And he says this, you're ambassadors and now God is pleading through you or appealing through you and you are to plead on behalf of Christ. It says implore, some versions say plead. So here's my point. What is God doing again now? Because I sometimes think we're waiting on God to save the world so we can go to heaven. Everybody want to go to heaven, but nobody want to go now. As a great psalmist, Kenny Chesney. And he is a great psalmist, personally. I like him. Nervous laughter in church because we're talking about country music. <laughs> All the church ladies came out. It's Satan. Um, <laughs> SNL reference, even worse. Boy, this is spiraling out of control in a hurry, isn't it? <laughs> but here's the point is that that God has paid to reconcile, but now he said the ministry of getting people reconciled to him is given to his ambassadors and that he appeals through his church as they plead on behalf of Christ. In other words, God has done all he will. Now we have to do all we can. He wrote the check. We go tell people they can cash it. And I thought about this word ambassador. Most of you know that's a diplomat, diplomat sent from one country to another country to, um, to represent their interest. And I thought about what makes a good ambassador. So I'll give you three things really quick. What makes a good ambassador. Number one, ambassador is a representative, right? So, so three things, I'm sorry, three things under being an ambassador or representative. Number one, if you're going to represent, then you have to have knowledge about what you're representing. In other words, you have to have a message. He said it's committed to us a message of reconciliation. Why? Because he's given us a ministry. So he's made us the secretary of reconciliation, right? Because that's, again, ministry means to administrate for government. 
That's why we have Secretary of Defense or Minister of Defense, right? So we, we talked about this, right? Or if not, I just talked about it then. I don't remember what service we're in, but anyways. Um, but so we have this ministry to administrate this reconciliation because he's paid the bill. And so now we have to have knowledge. So we have to have knowledge of the message. And I think some people don't have knowledge of the message. Like, what do I tell people? I'll give you five words really quickly. God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. God, right, starts with him, made man, man sinned, Jesus came, died on a cross, and was resurrected to give us new life. We were dead in sin. He went to the cross to pay for our sin, went, rose from the gra grave to give us new life, and now we can live forever. God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. But can I tell you the best message you can tell people? is yours. Right? Tell people your message because you know it. You know how God saved you. What was your life like before Christ and what is it like now? And hopefully there's a difference. <laughs> so I was like, you know, I don't think anything changed. Let me help you, sir. At the end of the service, we'll give people an opportunity but, but what did God do in your relationships? What do you do in your business? What do you do in your family? What do you do in your body? What do you do in your health? What do you do in your mind? You have messages. And here's the best thing about using your message. It's a message that is sealed and stamped from the king, right? Because an ambassador is in a country, but they are not of the country. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. We are to represent heaven to earth, right? That's what, that's what we are. We're ambassadors. So we, we are diplomats, essentially, from heaven to represent heaven's interest on the earth. Right? And, and so the best message you can share is your message. Now, you don't need to share your doctrine because people can argue a doctrine, but they can't argue a testimony. And I think some people are like, oh, I'd witness more, but I don't know more scripture. You don't need to know more scripture. You just need to know what God did for you. That is your message of reconciliation, the message by which he reconciled you. Are, are you with me? And, and, then, and then you have to have diplomacy. So you have to have knowledge. So you have to have a message. You have to have the diplomacy, which is you have to understand the culture that you're in. And can I just say it because I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to be really blunt. Christians have got to stop being so freaking weird. <laughs> My God. You send people out to witness and they look at people all crazy. <laughs> if you were to die tonight... Where would you go? <laughs> My God, man, you're hurting all of us. Stop it. Stop being weird. Brother, you're going to burn in damnation fire. Well, that makes me want to pray a prayer and come to Christ right there. You need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb so you can be purified like the snow. What kind of cult do you go to? You're killing lambs and making snow. When you read the writings of Paul, do you understand that Paul was a genius at putting the gospel in their culture? Even at Mars Hill, they had all these shrines to all these gods, but they didn't have one to Yahweh God, to, to, to Jehovah. 
And Paul says, you know, this is amazing, all these things. I want to talk to you about, and he finds this one statue. It's kind of cool. He finds this one statue of the God they didn't know, essentially. And he said, this is the guy I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about the God you didn't know. And they're like, oh, how cool. We wanted to know him, but we didn't know him. And now he's going to tell us who he is. He was a genius at it. He said, I became all things to all men that I might somehow win some. What I'm saying is, Christians, Christians, hear me, hear me, hear me. Stop being weird. <laughs> you got to understand the culture. You don't have to be of it, but you have to be in it. Right? This is why I love having teenagers, especially my daughter, Mariah, who's in this service, and, and, and she's my pop culture queen because she keeps me up to date on the music, on what's going on, the TV shows, like everything. And like we get in the truck and she's my DJ and she's playing music. I'm like, where'd you hear that song? Well, I heard it this, this, and that, and this, and this, this, and this person. Oh, dad, they're like all the thing now. I'm like, so cool. Let's jam. <laughs> I'm ready for a breakdown. <laughs> never going to get it. Never going to. 90s. Where are my 90s people? You don't understand. <laughs> Anyways, it's okay to not be cool, but you need to know the culture. I've accepted I'm no longer cool, but I want to know the culture. Because I have to talk to people in this culture. And when we started this church, I took, uh, I took a lot of, I made a lot of effort to cleanse my palate of all colloquial church phrases except the ones I keep around for fun. <laughs> because I wanted people to understand the gospel and I wanted to put it in their culture so that they could get it. Are, are you with me? Because I want to reach people. So there's culture. And then there's character. Because you may have, you may be from a great country and you may be representing great principles and a great agenda, but if your character doesn't line up with it, you've disqualified the message. And so for us as believers, that's why it's important that St. Augustine said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. It's important that the first message that we proclaim is the message of our life. You know, you can live in certain, a, a certain way that will make people thirsty and hungry for God. And so if we're going to be ambassadors, then, then we have to have this message and this culture and this character. We have to be in a world, but not of it. I thought those cool ambassadors do, do a couple of things. And, and that is they represent the country they're from. They establish relations and in hostilities. And we got a lot of people think God's out to get them. God's mad. You know, God's mean. And, and we get to go out there and represent him the right way. No, God is kind and loving and gracious. And, and, then, and then it says this. And then they plead the case of the country that they're from. And this is what he said. Pleading on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And I thought, let it not be that our church has no plea anymore. There's no longer a pleading church. No longer a prayer meeting where we're praying for the lost. No longer a church that is actively in outreach and trying to reach other people. We, we need a church that is pleading, be reconciled to God. He paid the bill. All churches say most, well, I can't say all because you really can't say all. Theoretically, most churches would tell you that their mission is the great commission. To go into all the world and preach the gospel. We, we have a value here. Found people, find people. We think we're found to find. 
And, and my concern is that according to this text, God has done his part. And now he's asking us if we're going to do ours. That he actually appeals through us, not apart from us. This is the commission. We have to go so he can appeal. We have to open our mouth so he can appeal. We have to build relationships so he can appeal. We have to live so he can appeal. We have to plead so he can appeal. That we can't sit at home and expect him to go into our neighborhoods and preach the gospel, though he's given that to us to go share the good news that your debt's been canceled, like God has paid to put righteousness in your account to make you alive. Like God wrote the check. He just wants you to cash it. But that doesn't happen without the church. That the church is the, the only modus operandi, the only modus operandi that exists for people to come to know Christ is the church. And let me tell you something that each of you have in common with me. And we all have in common with, with, with everyone else. Anyone who has come to know Christ has one thing in common. A somebody. A somebody that pleaded. A somebody that appealed. A somebody that brought you, led you, prayed with you, picked you up. We all have a somebody. If I were to ask you how you came to Christ, you're going to tell me a story about somebody. Somebody at my work, somebody in my family, my husband, my wife, my mom, my grandmother. But you're going to tell me the story of somebody. My question to our church is, will you be somebody's somebody? So here's what we did. Most of you probably came out and you saw this big map on the wall. It's a map of our city, and we didn't do that for decoration. Uh, we did that because I wanted to create an intent and focus in our church. And so when you came in, one of these cards was on your seat. One side, it has the map, and it has a blank. Um, found people, find people. And on the back, it's blue. It says, found people, find people. Here's what I'm asking everybody in our church to do, is write down the name of the somebody that you're going to be the somebody to. And first name only, by the way, first name only. We don't want last names. Um, and also, if they come to church with you, don't take them by the wall and say, look, I put your name up there. <laughs> That's back to some weird cult, right? But the idea is that we put their name, who we want to be the somebody for. We put their name there, and then we're going to hang it with all those names. And as those people come to Christ, we're going to flip it around until the wall turns blue. And so, yeah. Now, you can have more than one somebody, but I think, I think a great part of our faith is sharing our faith. And so I'm asking if there's somebody at your work, in, in, in your family, um, in your neighborhood, who, whoever it may be, and, and you're like, hey, I want to be that somebody, somebody. I don't think they know the Lord, or maybe you know for sure they don't know the Lord, whatever the case may be, then, then I'm going to make, you know, Bob. Bob's going to be my guy. And I'm going to pray for Bob, and I'm going to look for an opportunity to share. And let me give you one secret, and I know I'm going long, but let me give you one secret about sharing your faith. There has to be, there has to be seeds before there's harvest. And so it is okay to plant seeds while you're waiting to see when they're ready to harvest. Okay, I think we missed this. 
In fact, you can plant seeds in everybody's life and harvest somewhere. In, in other words, when you're talking to people, if you're sitting there like, if it's forced and you've got the Romans road laid out and all right, in time, and I've got five minutes and I'm going to get this guy to an altar call. You know what the Bible says? Stop being weird. Thank you. Don't force it. Have a conversation. Listen, you know, this has been a hard week and da, 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 da. And man, I just don't know. And then look what you can do. I do this all the time. Oh man, I know. Hard week. I, I know what it's like to have a hard week. I'm so thankful to have Christ in my life because he's my rock. He's what I lean on in the hard weeks. Who do you lean on? You don't have to be weird. You just have to have a conversation. Remember Jesus, he's at, the, he's at a well drawing water and just says, hey, could I have a drink? Well, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. I know. You know, if you'd ask me, I've got some really good water. What I want us to do as a church, listen, I want us to be somebody, somebody. Somebody's somebody. Somebody's somebody. And so if you don't have a name, that's fine. Take this card and pray. Go through the week. And when God gives you a name, bring it back next week. Hang it on the wall. If you've got four names, take four cards. But my hope is by the end of the year, that whole wall is blue. And this isn't church growth. I'm not worried if they come to church. They may not even be in our state. It doesn't matter. We have social media and texting and phones. I mean, you, you may be somebody, somebody who's in Alaska. That's fine with me. This is about being passionate about what God is passionate about. This is about the fact that right now, think about this, think about this. God has paid the bill for people, but they haven't accepted it, which means it's imbalanced. And right now, listen to me, people are hanging in the balance waiting for you to tell them to cash the check. It's just like reconciling accounts. There were sometimes you're about to reconcile the account, and as you reconcile it, you realize that you've got an outstanding check. There are outstanding checks all over the world. God has sent them. He has paid. And right now we need the ministry, the, the ambassadors to go and administrate the ministry of reconciliation and tell them cash the check and God will bring you in balance. I want us to be those ambassadors. I want us to be passionate about what he's passionate about. Can we do that? Come on, can we do that? Yeah, come on, Bob the Builder. Can we fix it? Yes, we can, right? I told you I wasn't cool, but I know some Bob the Builder. Bob Construye, by the way, if you're in Latin America, that's, I'm sorry, stand with me. I'm going to end all the bad jokes now.